All right, good morning to you. This is Mike Smith, and we start today with the pipeline attack in northern B.C. It was mayhem near Houston, where police say 20 people, some of them armed with axes, attacked the coastal gasoline pipeline, its workers and equipment. No arrests, no suspects. A police officer was injured. I've got B.C. Liberal leader Kevin Falcon standing by on this one first. Have a listen to this report now from Global News reporter Jordan Armstrong. Shortly after midnight, officers from Houston RCMP were called to the Martin Forest Service Road after Coastal GasLink Security reported violence at their work site, claiming some 20 people, some armed with axes, were attacking guards and smashing their vehicle windows. 41 kilometers up the Forest Road, RCMP claimed responding officers were met with downed trees, tar-covered stumps, spiked boards, fires, and people throwing smoke bombs and lit sticks at the police, injuring one officer. So looking to identify uh, those that may be responsible. At this time, it would be remiss to, to make a comment on who may be responsible for this as this investigation is ongoing. Certainly this is very troubling, an escalation in violent criminal activity, and it could have resulted in serious injury or even death. There of RCMP Corporal Madonna Saunderson there at the end. All right, let's discuss now with my guest, BC Liberal Leader Kevin Falcon. I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Thanks a lot for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. Okay, your thoughts on this attack? It's extremely troubling, Mike. I mean, this uh, takes it to a whole new level. And first of all, I, I just want to just extend my empathy for those workers, uh, you know, both First Nations and non-First Nations that that, that work at that site, how terrifying it would be uh, to have that situation happen, whether they tried to light their truck on fire, there's axes smashing out windows. I mean, these are domestic terrorists, and the harshest penalties need to be imposed upon them once we track them down. Okay, how crucial is this project? This is a vital link for the giant LNG Canada mega project in, in Kitimat. If this pipeline doesn't go through, I mean, that export terminal doesn't get built either, correct? Absolutely. It's part of the largest single investment in the history of the country of Canada, a $40 billion project. This is a key part of it. Uh, I think that the message this sends around the world, which is exactly what they're trying to achieve, I'm sure, is that somehow it's uh, BC is a place that's not safe to do business, um, and which is why the response has to be extremely uh, harsh uh, against these folks. Um, this is a growing pattern of lawlessness that we've seen in British Columbia. You recall that this same area in the fall, we had 500 workers there that were trapped and blockaded for a week before wow. the government responded to help these people. They had declining food, water. Uh, they were completely blocked off. Their families were all worried. And very little was done to the people that did this. And so, not surprisingly, we see it now escalating. Okay, speaking to Liberal leader Kevin Falcon, you're calling this morning on the John Horgan government to do more to protect the workers and infrastructure here on this project. What precisely do you want to see done? Well, first, I think it's important. You have to stop playing footsie uh, with these folks to do this. You'll recall in 2019, then-Minister Doug Donaldson, the NDP minister, visited the pipeline protesters at the illegal blockade in Houston and was handing out supplies. Then you had the NDP or Nathan Cullen, uh, who's part of the Horgan government, writing to the RCMP, complaining that the RCMP are being too tough on these poor people. I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's ridiculous. So first of all, uh, what I would do differently, I think we have to, frankly, look at the laws that apply and toughen up the laws and penalties against those who think that laws don't apply to them. 
secondly, it's this pattern of lawlessness that I see, not just in the north, but even locally when you see ambulances being blockaded by protesters trying to get to hospitals or environmentalists deciding that, gee, on a Friday afternoon, I think we'll just go shut down a bridge. People just uh, are increasingly showing a contempt for the law that I think is totally unacceptable. I think we have to stop the catch and release approach where they get arrested and then they get released. I think there's got to be penalties. Um, I would start with uh, maybe 200 hours of cleaning up garbage around the city of Vancouver and then escalate that into jail time if necessary. And I would also look at, uh, I think we have to look at setting up a, a separate policing unit that is focused just on these kind of protesters because I think the the level uh, and the scale of, uh, of avoiding the law and ignoring the law and showing contempt for the law is very troubling in a democracy when rule of law has to be the most important thing okay. we think about. Okay, you've got a very difficult situation around this project here with a, a First Nation, the Wet'suwet'en First Nation, and some of the people there divided on the project, notably some of the hereditary chiefs there who have voiced their opposition to the project in their traditional territory. Now, you also have the elected band councils of the First Nations along this pipeline have all signed on and have endorsed it. Many of them have signed benefit-sharing agreements with the project. But there's division in that First Nation, right? I mean, this is why, yeah. I mean, if the government was here right now, if Horgan was here, he would say that this is why he said he sent Donaldson and Nathan Cullen up there to talk to people because you've got a divided First Nation on there and he, and he wants to talk to them and work it out peacefully. Your thoughts? Well, well, the problem is they've only made it worse. Um, it is not unusual for there to be divisions on major projects. I mean, there's divisions in the broader community too. But this is where I, I, I often talk about principled leadership. You have to be guided by principles. One of the principles is there is laws. Laws apply equally to all. When we have a project that has been approved by all the First Nations up and down that corridor, where there are $800 million in benefits that are flowing to First Nations and non-First Nations along that corridor, when you've got all the permitting and permits in place, then it's time to move on with the project. And if some people don't like that, that's unfortunate. You deal with them. If, they, if they're going to break the law, you put them in jail. You have to have principles, Michael, or you have chaos. And what the NDP have done, is, as, as my good friend uh, Ellis Ross pointed out, is they've actually made things worse. They went up and they negotiated with the so-called hereditary leaders, signing MOUs. None, uh, what, what, do you mean, so, what do you mean so-called? You don't believe they're hereditary chiefs well, well, up there? Well, some of, the folks, some of the folks up there are suggesting that not all of them are hereditary leaders. There's arguments about that, but the point is... What they have done, according to Ellis, is actually rewarded the professional protesters who are getting in the way of the First Nations who are trying to earn a living along that corridor. And so I just think that, again, there's got to be a rule of law and we have to follow the law. It's got to apply equally to everyone. Okay, you're calling on the NDP government to do more. The government has responded on it here. Public Safety Minister Mike Farnworth uh, issuing a statement. He says there's no excuse for this kind of violence and intimidation. All workers deserve to be protected from harassment and harm, and this destructive attack should be condemned by all British Columbians. Not good enough for you? Not even close. I mean, this is what they always do. They trot out Mike Farnworth. He gives some tough-sounding talk uh, to hopefully settle people down. But, you know, frankly, it's not good enough. He should start by walking over to his, Colin, his uh, colleague, Nathan Collin, and tell him to stop writing letters to the RCMP complaining how unfair they're being to protesters. This is what happens. This is the inevitable result uh, when you treat these kind of folks with kid gloves. You have got to just make it very, very clear that the rule of law will be upheld. Look, we've seen this. 
even in the Ferry Creek protesters, you saw the, yeah. the uh, B.C. appeals court judges unanimously say the public interest, and I'm quoting, the public interest is in upholding the rule of law. And you can't allow people that are setting up dangerous traps, trying to, uh, you know, flying in supplies. They're professionally funded with their professional protesters. You've got to have uh, somebody that stands up and say enough is enough. The, the rule of law is going to apply and these folks are going to pay a price. Thanks for coming on today. Thanks for having me, Mike. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the truck blockade in Ottawa now. This is really going down right now in the nation's capital. There's a huge police presence on the streets of Ottawa at this hour. Trucks are being towed away. Protesters are being arrested. Yeah, this is all coming to a head in Ottawa right now. We're keeping a close eye on that for you. Meanwhile, the legal battles also going full steam ahead. There are now two, count them, two constitutional challenges to the Emergencies Act, which was declared this week by Prime Minister Justin Trudeau, handing himself extraordinary powers uh, to deal with these truck blockades. Lots of controversy around it. Some people calling it overreach, a power grab. Trudeau, though, is defending the Emergencies Act. Here he is speaking about it in the House of Commons. Have a listen. The Charter of Rights and Freedoms continues to apply. Uh, the Emergencies Act is uh, subject to the Charter of Rights and Freedoms, and the measures that we've brought forward are proportional, measured, and responsible. Okay, well, that's what he says. Others are not agreeing, and they're going to court. Let's check in with Joanna Barron now, Executive Director of the Canadian Constitution Foundation, one of the groups that's launching a challenge to the Emergencies Act. Joanna, thank you for coming on today. Great to be here with you. Okay, can you tell me about your court case? Yeah, so we have, are going to be filing, hopefully early next week, an urgent judicial review challenging the Prime Minister's invocation of the Emergency Act as an unlawful expansion of executive power. We don't think that the basic preconditions of the statute have been met, and we're very concerned. This is the first time the Emergencies Act has been invoked, and so it's really important to not set a precedent that the government can just overreach like this when they're largely nonviolent, although we certainly agree that the protests have been disruptive. Um, but we just don't think that it rises to the extraordinarily high threshold of a national emergency that no other law in Canada can deal with, that provinces can't deal with. Uh, it's a high threshold. Yeah, I think you put your finger on the crucial element there at the end. There's no other way to deal with this. Like, if you look at the precise wording of this act, it says this has to be an urgent crisis facing the country, and there's just no other way to deal with it. The police can't handle it. You know, the provinces can't deal with it. So we've got to have these extraordinary powers. You're not buying that? You think you think the police could have handled this without this Emergencies Act? Absolutely. And I think it's not a question of theory at this point. First of all, the Ontario Provincial Police cleared the blockades at the Ambassador Bridge. Alberta Police cleared the blockades at Coots. And right now, everything that's happening in Ottawa, to be clear, is permitted and, you know, and prescribed by ordinary police powers. Even, by the way, uh, the power to compel tow truck operators to tow trucks away that are blocking roadways. Oh, you mean they could do that without an emergencies act? They could. There's a really? provision in the yeah. in the criminal code that says if a police officer directs you to do something in the furtherance of the public good, you are committing a crime if you uh, if you refuse to comply. Right. 
Another one of the extraordinary powers here is maybe it's the maybe it's the biggest one, the most controversial one, and those are the financial powers here for financial institutions to seize and freeze bank accounts for anyone who's participating or supporting uh, these blockades. I know this is a big point of contention too. Let me be, let me get your thoughts on that. I'll play a clip here for you from the federal finance minister, Christia Freeland, outlining that. And then I'll get your thoughts. If your truck is being used in these illegal blockades, your corporate accounts will be frozen. The insurance on your vehicle will be suspended. Send your semi-trailers home. What do you think of that? I think it's troubling. I think it sets up an extremely low bar. And furthermore, uh, Freeland also announced that there's now a directive to banks to freeze or suspend bank accounts that they suspect may be connected to the protests, which is a very low bar. So the federal government is essentially deputizing banks to take arbitrary action without due process. Um, And again, this is a precedent that every Canadian should be concerned about. If you support a protest that the state has deemed unlawful, that they disagree with, we will freeze your accounts. Like, let's be clear. This is these are the actions of authoritarian governments. Yeah, one thing occurred to me was, let's say someone, I don't know, donated fifty dollars or a hundred bucks to this convoy. Let's say three weeks ago, before the blockade started, thinking like, well, this is going to be a peaceful legal protest. They didn't know they were going to occupy the streets of Ottawa. You know, are they subject now to having their their bank accounts frozen? We just got thirty seconds here. I'll say two things. On the, on the face of the law, they are subject to it. I very much don't expect that Royal Bank of Canada is going to be targeting every 30 to $50 donation. But yeah. there's nothing in the law that would prevent them from being. And that alone in a country that's governed by the rule of law should concern us. Thank you for coming on today. We're following it closely. Appreciate it. Thank you. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about British Columbia's new economic plan that was rolled out yesterday by Premier John Horgan. It is called Stronger BC, a plan for today, a vision for tomorrow. And the plan, a little short on details. I didn't see a lot of dollar figures in here, but it does talk about filling uh, millions of jobs in British Columbia going forward. Have a listen to this. This is Premier John Horgan speaking yesterday. Despite all that we've been through, the economic recovery in British Columbia is leading the country with the lowest unemployment rate and the highest job recovery rate. More people are working today than were when the pandemic began. And our economic vision has always been to put people right at the center of everything that we do. We cannot have economic growth that leaves people behind. All right, it's John Horgan speaking yesterday. Let's discuss now with our panel. We got both sides of it for you. Andrew Mercier is the NDP MLA for Langley. He is the government's parliamentary secretary for skills training. And I'm very pleased to welcome him back to the show. Andrew, thank you for coming on. Thanks for having me, Mike. You bet. Thank you. Also on the line is Trevor Halford, liberal MLA for Surrey White Rock. Hey, Trevor. Hey, Mike. How are you? Hey, Andrew. I'm- I'm doing great. Thank you, gentlemen, to both of you. Andrew Mercier, let me go to you first. I, I watched this, the Premier's economic plan event yesterday. I've taken a look at some of the documentation. It's a little it's a little light on some of the details for my liking. I don't see a lot of dollar numbers in there, but what highlights would you hit? What do you want the people of BC to know about this plan today? 
Yeah, thanks, Mike. The first thing I'd say is that, you know, this is a plan about, you know, outcomes and the strategy for how to get to where we're going. You'll see the dollar figures and investments. Um, we're, uh, you know, we're, I think, two days, three days away from the budget on Tuesday. So, you know, that's where you'll start to see dollars and numbers. Uh, you know, this is a significant plan that invests in people. And I think most importantly, it addresses the skills gap. The critical issue we're going to have going forward as a province over the next 10 years is training people up to fill the jobs that are coming on the horizon. Uh, and, you know, I think as part of the plan, um, we announced uh, a $136 million investment in a new trades training complex at BCIT so we can train the next generation of workers. Okay, I also noted that the plan calls for growing the economy, and then it says the plan is to fill around 1 million jobs over the next decade, fill fill these jobs. So would those be new jobs or those are jobs that are open because of attrition, like people have retired, so you need to fill that job? Like, what does that mean, fill? Yeah, it, 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 exactly, Mike. So it's both. It's both a, it's both a factor of growth and new demand, but also, uh, you know, retirements and a coming demographic cliff. So, for instance, I'll use a specific example, which is uh, the trade sector, right? I deal with that a lot in my role as parliamentary secretary. 85,000 jobs are coming in the next 10 years in the construction trades, and roughly 60% of those are due to retirement. So we need to make sure that we're apprenticing people and training them now. And that means significant investments from government, like um, the investment in BCIT. If we want to take advantage of, say, shipbuilding, uh, we need to have the space to train marine fitters so boiler makers and metal fabricators can upgrade their skills. Okay, Liberal MLA Trevor Halford, what do you think of this plan? Uh, not a lot. Um, I, I think it's a, it's a plan that is, is, uh, is, is very shortcoming in a lot of aspects. Listen, this is something that apparently was five years in the making. Um, I think a lot of people are quite underwhelmed. I, I think that we're seeing that quite frequently. I think that, you know, what we're seeing from the NDP is that, you know, their idea of growing the economy is actually growing government. And, you know, we're talking about uh, Mr. Mercier highlighted the, uh, the BCIT training center. That is the only funding that is attached to um, this economic plan. And it is a plan that is, it does not deal with affordability. It does not deal with housing prices. It does not deal with gas prices. British Columbians in every corner of this province are feeling squeezed every single day. This plan does nothing to alleviate any of that. And, you know, we're talking about things that are five, ten years in the, um, in the offing. What this really is, is that this is a reintroduction of, of uh, Premier Horgan's um, election platform. And I, I think that that's, you know, that's something that, what? you know, at a time we're actually trying to find more from this government, we're getting less. Okay, Andrew Mercier, what do you say to that? Well, I'd say affordability is huge and it's front of center, and that's part of investing in people. And I'll use a concrete, tangible example of that, Mike. Uh, and childcare, for instance, childcare. So you look at, we have a million jobs on the horizon. We need to help facilitate young parents and women getting into the workforce. And, you know, again, I'll use a specific example. You look at uh, the skilled trades. Only 4% of skilled trades people are women. When I talk to tradeswomen, uh, you know, what I'm told chronically is that there's a need for more before and after childcare, affordable childcare, so they can get to job sites. So we're investing in that. We're going to be lowering childcare fees by 50% and investing in new places. That's a core part of the plan to help build affordability and get people uh, get people into jobs. And actually, I think right now, um, the minister is actually making a, a childcare announcement. That's that's part of that. But I'd reiterate as well, 
uh, the budget's coming on Tuesday, and you can expect yeah. to see some numbers on Tuesday, Mike. Yeah, Tuesday's <laughs> going to be a big day with the BC budget yeah. coming up. Go ahead, Trevor. <laughs> the one thing I'll say, just just on the budget, is that, you know, unfortunately, it's almost easier to get a Super Bowl ticket than it would be to get invited to the minister's budget lockup this year, um, which is somewhat... <laughs> Somewhat alarming considering the amount of stakeholders that are, uh, you know, wanting to to get advanced copy to prepare for this budget. But, you know, the uh, uh, Mr. Mercier talks about child care. Well, right now, and when we talk about child care, you look at the private um, sector child care, they're shutting down. And that is primarily women that are losing their jobs because this government has turned their back on private child cares. And what that is actually in my neighborhood, my area and other areas um, child care spaces are actually diminishing now as a result of this NDP's war on, on private child care. So, you know, I, I, I think that when we're talking about jobs and growing the economy, um, the safest job in this province is a government job. And what, what? You know, this, this plan here does not do anything, in my view, to expand private sector jobs. Um, it's nothing but pretty much a propaganda document that doesn't have any real measurable targets, goals, or benchmarks. And I think the NDP realized that. And the other fact is, too, is that if this was a document that, that the NDP would be proud of, um, I would think that they would have offered a technical briefing. They would have offered other things than that. But this is not a document that is, that is strong in terms of deliberal goals and things that will help okay. British Columbians today. Let me go to Andrew Mercier on those points. Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, well, I'll just address the comment, uh, war on child care. I mean, I think nothing could be more ludicrous or further from the truth. I mean, we have heard it. Well, you can check that out, Andrew, and Sachi, who are closing down every single day. Hang on. Hang on. Because we're not supporting private child care. Hang on, Trevor, 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 hang on a sec. He He did not interrupt you, okay? So, Andrew, go ahead. Yeah, thank you. So we're building out child care pretty significantly. I see the results of that, you know, in Langley, uh, in my constituency, around where I live. But I can also say, you know, for a fact, I have helped private child care providers in my constituency have access to the new spaces fund. I mean, we are building out record numbers of child care spaces. I agree there needs to be more, and that's part of why we have a 10-year vision to get there, to build a, a new social program effectively from the ground up. Okay, I'm speaking to NDP MLA Andrew Mercier, Liberal MLA Trevor Halford. We're talking about the B.C. government's new economic plan that was rolled out yesterday. So, Trevor Halford, when you say that the, this NDP government is is doing a war on private child care, what do you mean by that? Well, I mean in terms of funding, in terms of new spaces. Like, it is very hard for private child cares now to get access to government funding um, because they are not... Uh, they're not following the government model in terms of 10 day, 10 day dollar daycare. So right now we're hearing from a number of private childcare sectors that are feeling squeezed because they're not getting the subsidies that they are previously getting by this government. And that is now making it almost unaffordable for them to operate. And so, and that is an operation that was primarily done by women. And I've seen a number of private child cares close in my area. And this is something we've canvassed in question period and it's happening throughout the province. Hey, Trevor, let me ask you about affordability, which I agree with both of you is very much top of mind for a lot of people. We're seeing record high inflation right now. Everything seems to be going up. We have the highest gas prices ever. And you highlighted that in your comments there, Trevor Halford, about the cost of living for people. So, like, what are you calling on government to do about gas prices or or housing prices? I mean, what would the liberals do about that? Well, I think in terms of housing, it's, it's supply. And I, I think that that's, you know, for, for us is that we've, we've talked about issues of working with municipalities 
making sure that there is more supply in, in all areas of this province to actually create opportunities for new buyers to get into the market. And, you know, right now in every single community, and I'm seeing that in Surrey and White Rock, there is extreme supply shortages of new housing coming onto the markets. So, you know, I know that the Attorney General, the Minister responsible for housing, has indicated that he wants to work with municipalities. We need to respectfully accelerate that and make sure that we are getting more supply on the ground so that people are able to have access to housing. Okay, Andrew Mercier, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so we're making the largest investment in housing in BC's history, and we're committing to build over 114,000 affordable homes, 31,000 of which are completed and are underway. But I'll I'll say this, we have taken a number of measures to, to help address housing affordability. If you rent, your rent is capped to inflation. It used to be inflation plus an extra 2%. Now it's capped to inflation. Um, you know, we're saving renters hundreds of dollars per year. Uh, and, uh, you know, when you look at transportation projects, like, for instance, we're building the SkyTrain to Langley. We're ensuring that there's um, transit-oriented development integrated into that. And I think, you know, my community, Langley, is a very good example of how that's going to play out. So the development that happens around that, uh, you know, working with municipalities so that it yeah. leads to affordable rentals and affordable homes for families. Okay, let me uh, Trevor Halford, you also mentioned gas prices. What would the Liberals do to bring down gas prices? Well, I think we've, we've got to look at everything we've got in terms of gas prices, in terms of you know whether we cap certain things with, with taxation on gas prices once it reaches a certain level. But um, there is a large amount of tax that's built into, into gas prices, specifically in the JVRD. And I, I think that we have actually have to have a very, very strong look at what we're doing in terms of taxation. So you, when, okay, when you say you would put a, a cap on gas taxes, what do you mean? Like the carbon tax? Like what taxes are you talking about that you would cap? Well, I think we'd have to have a breakdown of, of all the taxes that are on there. But, you know, what we could do is we can look at different things in terms of I know that gas prices did increase, I think, um, albeit by a, it may have been a penny or something of the last. Uh, it could have been, I think, January 1st. But we need to make sure that when those increases are actually taking place, that, that we're looking at from affordability perspective. And uh, clearly, this government has committed to be looking at gas prices and we haven't seen them yeah. take any action. And the other thing, just on the in terms of renters, yeah. is that this is a government that campaigned on a four hundred dollar renters rebate, and we've heard nothing. And in question period, we canvassed this the other day with the attorney general, and all we got from him is we're working on it. So I, okay. I'd like to ask, you know, Mr. Mercier, is are they actually working on it? And when British Columbians can can look at this four hundred dollars renter rebate that has oh, been promised? Okay, Andrew, I, Andrew Mercier, Andrew Mercier, that four hundred dollar renters rebate. Yeah, what happened to that? Yeah, we're working on it, Mike. I mean, it's a campaign promise, and we're implementing our campaign promises. And I would say that uh, I would say that uh, you know, stay tuned for what's to come. But I want to address the point here on on uh, gas prices and the Fuel sure. Transparency Act. So, Mr. Halford pointed out, yeah, gas went up, uh, gas gas tax went up by one penny. The increase we've seen at the pump has been a lot more than a penny. And I can tell you, I'm no stranger to that. I live in Langley. I live south of the Fraser. I I have to drive for a living. Um, so, you know, so I understand that. So what we've done is we've passed the Fuel Transparency Act so that gas companies are, uh, have to be accountable to the BC Utilities Commission, um, you know, for, for how much they're charging. And we're okay. going through a process around that now. But I'll say this, that the BC Liberals, when we introduced that act, stood up to defend the privacy interests of gas companies. They weren't standing up for the consumer at the pump. They were standing okay. up 
for Chevron. All right, welcome back to the show. Susan in Surrey was our winner today of the TEDx virtual passes for Surrey in on February 19th. And she also gets $100 to the mixed restaurant, the Sheraton Guildford Hotel. Congratulations to you, Susan. And not only did Susan win that prize, but she also goes into the draw now for the grand prize coming up later in the show for that Easter dinner and a Mother's Day dinner package, courtesy of the Sheraton Guildford Hotel. All right. Let's talk about the minimum wage in British Columbia now set to rise again. Here is Premier John Horgan with that promise to make to jack up the minimum wage in British Columbia. Here's what he had to say on the campaign trail. What I'm going to do is raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour by the end of my first term in government. Right now, we're amongst the lowest minimum wages in the country in the most unaffordable place in Canada. Okay, well, it has gone up to over $15 an hour, and it's set to rise again. Let's check in with Ian Tostenson now, president of the BC Restaurant and Food Services Association. Ian, thanks for coming on. Hey, Mike, good to talk to you. What, th- it's great to have you on again. What is the minimum wage in British Columbia now? Well, we're $15.20. Right. It used to have a minimum wage that sort of segregated or separated, you know, non-liquor server wages from wages, but it's all the same now. So it's fifteen twenty. It's gone up over 30 percent in the you know since 2017 so it's been a substantial increase um and now if we're looking at a cost of uh cost of living increase so if we look at maybe four percent you know certainly you know hopefully it's not higher than that but it averages out you know if you you take a three million dollar rest we've done this before mike but a three million dollar restaurant would have about a six hundred thousand dollar payroll and you add four percent to that, suddenly you're twenty four thousand dollars in a, you know medium sized restaurant a year, two thousand dollars a month, and you know and that's substantial um, because you also get what we call sort of the inflationary side is that wage brackets would go up. So if the, if the bottom goes up, the middle and the tops would go up. Everybody else will say, well, gee, I want to have the benefit of that increase too. Certainly. Um, I will say this, the, the one mitigating factor could be most of our wages, with the exception of the non-licensed restaurants, are probably well above minimum wage right now because of the, of the supply and demand of labor. So, you know, and, and the second thing I'll say, too, is that, oh, boy, we need employees. And so, you know, we're going to have to pay and, and, and to retain them. So, um, yeah, it's another challenge so- for us. So most restaurants you're saying are already paying more than $15.20 an hour, the minimum wage, is that right? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you're, you're seeing kitchen jobs. I mean, there's a story uh, that Global was running about someone wanting to pay over 22 to $22 an hour for dishwasher, and that's a bit of an anomaly. But, yeah, for sure. We're seeing wage rates now that, you know, 16 17 $18 an hour, and, you know, for kitchen staff, and, and then, of course, Servers, um, they have their wages, but also they have their gratuities, which is, which I think what we're seeing data-wise, gratuities have actually gone up. People have been even more generous. I know that I am. I mean, we've sort of blown over to 20% now and give them the benefit of the doubt because they've been through so much in the last yeah. couple of years. Okay, $15.20 an hour is the current minimum wage in British Columbia. It is set to rise again here now on June 1st. Now, is it correct that the 
in minimum wage in British Columbia is now indexed to inflation. So the minimum wage would rise equal to the inflation rate. Is that correct? Yeah, okay. yeah and I don't, I don't think anybody, when we said that, when we did the calculations on with the, with the, with the government on, you know, when we got to 1520, then it was supposed to be inflation. No one expected inflation to be the highest it has been ever, almost, in, in yeah. Canada. So we have to really hopefully work with government and find a fair average of that because I think it would be if we if we're running inflation right now, say it's you know, almost six percent, and we need to increase this by six percent. I think it's a bit of an anomaly. We're gonna have to find some averaging, and I think the uh, the government's been Whoa. really good about this kind of stuff, but okay. it's huge. Okay, so you're saying that with inflation running so high right now. You're saying don't wallop us with a, a minimum wage increase that matches that, but lower? You would like to see a lower increase than the inflation rate? Is that right? If, yeah. If we assume that the inflation is, is temporary and it's an anomaly, because you got to think, Mike, if we were to say, let's say we, we pegged it at 6%, well, you just raised all the wages by 6%. You're going to carry that forever. It's not like you can make the adjustment go backwards. So let's make sure the adjustment that we do make is one that that takes into account, you know, a, more of an averaging and more of a forward-thinking point of view of what inflation is likely to be. I don't think okay. we want to be raising the minimum wage by what just hopefully a year anomaly in, um, you know, with with inflation. Speaking to Ian Tostenson, president of the BC Restaurants Association, the minimum wage in British Columbia is set to rise again, currently fifteen dollars and twenty cents an hour. Well, you heard that election campaign promise that john horgan made that we played there promising to increase the minimum wage to 15 bucks an hour and he certainly made good on that and let me play another clip here for you ian with your thoughts so this is bc labor minister harry baines explaining how future increases in the minimum wage will work have a listen here and then i'll get your thoughts many business groups that i met including small businesses they say what they need is predictability and that's what this report uh, advises that we will have gradual common sense increases where the businesses will have time to adjust their labor cost. So I think this is a good thing for businesses. Okay, so he says this yep. is actually a good thing for business, that they're going to increase the minimum wage. It will be gradual. It will be predictable that he said that. He makes it sound like this. Is, you guys are jumping up and down and celebrating that the minimum wage is going up. Are your thoughts? Well, of course, because we, we have no other cost increase around yeah, right. us right now. Um well, there's a, the BC Fair Wage Commission will have to take a look at this, and I think I, you know, I, and I do agree with what the minister's saying is, is that in normal times it's very predictable. So we can see, you know, we saw for a number of years that inflation was probably one and a half to two percent. Uh, you know, you could build it into your your labor costs, and, and but right now it's been a, a bunch, a whole bunch of unpredictable factors. Number one is what is the actual real inflation rate, not the sort of abnormal one. And then we, we couple that with, you know, supply chain challenges and, and paid sick day leaves and all those different items. Um, there's a lot of costs coming at restaurants right now that's totally unpredictable. So uh, that's why I, you know, long term as it smooths out, he's absolutely right. But like I said, this year, I think the point's going to have to be, let's not just going to go, well, Canada's at a 6% inflation, so let's do that. I think that's just going to really overhurt us. You mentioned earlier that there used to be a liquor server minimum wage in British Columbia, which was someone who was working in a liquor primary restaurant or bar, I guess. Or, they, or would, it, would that have applied to a, any restaurant with a liquor license? You would get that liquor server rate? Yeah, the thinking was right. that 
you are a server and and you you know and, and they tied it to liquor and so um, you could make two dollars an hour less because you your tips are so high because you're you yeah. know, you're, you're you're probably making at this the average sort of wage at that point thirty five to forty bucks an hour the the government when they looked at this and they, they raised a fair point I mean and and we we sort of said yeah you know what I mean it's economically it makes sense but you know the, in today's world uh, when you look at who the servers are they're primarily women and the argument was is that you know are we really wanting to put women in the position of having to sort of work harder uh for their tips by paying them yeah. less and and, and i and we and that argument is, is a fair argument in today's world for sure speaking of tips we're just going through this still in this pandemic and it's been a tough road for restaurants to say the least do you did you say that people are tipping more? Is that your experience? Yeah, I think so. Um, I think that people just sort of you know if they were at fifteen, they went to twenty. If I can, and I think Mike, now it's more not just a percentage, but what the bill is. I mean, for a thirty-five dollar bill, and you want to tip, say ten uh, percent, three bucks, or twenty percent, six bucks. Like I mean, just. I, I try to round it up. I try to just add a bit more because I know firsthand that these workers, like our like our industries, are just starting to get back on their feet, and they're they're going to have to recover economically. So, okay. we're, you know, I, I think I think just being a little bit more generous uh, is most appreciated for sure. All right, welcome back. Ian Tostenson is my guest. We're talking about the minimum wage in British Columbia set to rise again. Also, tipping in restaurants. Are you tipping more these days? Let's go to your phone calls here. Adam in Pitt Meadows. Hi, Adam. Hey, Mike. Hi. Um, yeah, it's, uh, I've been noticing our food bill, like uh, when I took the kids out in the family, it used to be 100 bucks pre-pandemic, and now it's 200 bucks. Yes, I'm Whoa. tipping more. I'm not doing... I'm doing over 20% on that. So that's a 50, so now that's a $250 bill. Um, but we're not going out as much. Yeah. Like I used to have steak all the time and I think I have only had steak in two months. Yeah, no, I hear you, man. Like the food prices are really, really going up. It's a shock sometimes when you go to the supermarket and you're like, what? I got like one bag of groceries here. You're charging me how much? Yeah. It's uh, rice prices are up in restaurants too. I imagine Ian, are prices going up? Well, they have been, you know, for all the reasons we talked about, not just wages, but the cost of pandemic and supply chain and, and you know, the the paid leave thing. All these things are are piling on. You know, it's going to be really important that we manage this. Um, you know, we're not making much money, if any, right now, but um, because we have to absorb these costs. So how do we, you know, menu engineer or engineer our menus? Maybe there's different cuts of meat to your caller's point that we can yeah. ensure people can go out and have an affordable meal. We, we're good at doing that, but um, and we may have to back off and not have you know the, the first-class steak, but maybe making some changes in our menus. It's critical we do that. Otherwise, you know, we're going to incrementally start to see a slowdown, which we don't need right now. Dustin on the line in Surrey. Hi, Dustin. Go ahead. Hey there. Uh, I'm not a business owner by any means, but uh, I just wonder like, where, where this all ends because... You know, wages are like for people like in trades are staying the same. Minimum wage goes up, but ours stays the same. You know, inflation up, cost of living goes up. It's already the most expensive place to live. So yeah. where does this end? You know, like okay, it, well, wages go up, then everything else goes up. So th- thank you, Dustin, for the call. Well, the the minimum wage. You correct me if I'm wrong, Ian, but it's supposed to go up now every year. Correct. That's correct. 
Um, and now I was looking, I mean, <clears throat> my point here, Mike, is that if we were to tag, by the, end we, by the time we get to the end of 2022, uh, it's, it, the Canada's inflation should be just over 3%. But if we tag this in June to the current situation, yeah. it's higher than that. It's, yeah. you know, it's, it's four or five or maybe a bit higher than that. So that's why I say we don't want to get to the end of the year and say, well, actually, inflation is three, but we, we put it up by 6%. We've got to really be careful about all these cost increases to your caller's point and just keep passing on, passing on. The consumer only has so much money. It's going to put a lot of pressure on business and a lot of pressure on government because, you know, we can't take any more downloading costs from government as well either. Ash on the line in Vancouver. Hi, Ash. Go ahead. Hi, Mike. Uh, hi to you and your guests. This is a very complex issue, Mike. Now, we're talking about minimum wage, but to be honest with minimum wage in this province is a thing in the past. We have companies like Amazon coming and advertising 23 bucks an hour, plus all the uh, benefits that they provide. That by itself pushes the minimum wage higher because now if you want to get somewhat decent workers, you need to start matching what they are paying. Now, yes, to be sir. honest with, this is a complex issue, and the number one problem is the affordability in this province. The government needs to fix that, and the, and the crown jewel of affordability is the housing issue. Okay, the I... dinosaur age rulings that we have for, for the cities to provide a, 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 a permit, that needs uh, to be resolved so there is more homes so people can afford it. So no, they I can, agree with you. I, th- thanks for the call. I agree with you on the, ho- the housing supply. I mean, we're not building enough stuff that people can afford. But just uh, we just got a little over a minute left here. Ian, he was talking about the inflationary pressure on wages, and I'm sure restaurants are, well, you already said a lot of restaurants are paying more than the minimum wage right now. But your thoughts? Yeah, you get, uh, it's almost min- can becoming minimum expectations when you get all these you know, tech companies that are paying like that. But there's always going to be a place for restaurant jobs, and we're going to go on to a fairly aggressive social media campaign, and we're going to talk to parents, and we're going to say, if your kids are doing something or nothing right now for your job, head out to a restaurant and get some great experience. So we're going to really try to deal with this labor shortage. Because we offer things that, you know, construction and, and Amazon don't, flexibility, and there's a great uh, income in terms of tips. So, you know, I think that we, we're not going to get tied to, to sort of benchmarking an Amazon but yeah. what happens if wages go high? Then you start to see the effect of technology. So pay, you know, pay at the table technology and ordering technology. You start taking people out of the equation or more okay. uh, different efficiencies in kitchens. And so there's a lot for us to consider here. Okay, I'm looking forward to that campaign, and we'll have you. We'll certainly have you back to talk about it. Ian, thank you very much for coming on today. Have a great weekend, Michael. Hit a restaurant.